Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. On the day of the Lord's resurrection in John 20, we have this account. In John 20, verse 19, it says, When it was evening on that day, this is the day of the Lord's resurrection, it was the first day of the week, and while the doors were shut where the disciples were because they were afraid of the Jews, notice they were in hiding and they were afraid. The Lord Jesus comes and He stands in their midst and He says to them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. And the disciples, when they see that it's really the Lord, the crucified one, they rejoiced at the sight of the Lord. I want you to notice verse 21. Again, the Lord would say to them, peace. I, I find it interesting that he had to say to them, shalom, peace, twice. Perhaps that's indicative how scared they were, how timid, how afraid, how, in a way, cowardly they were. But he says to them twice, hey, it's going to be okay. God's peace be to you. Everything's okay. He says to them, peace. And then look at verse 21. He says, as the Father sent me, as the Father commissioned me and ordained me to come, as I partnered with my Father, He says, I now also want to send you. I partnered with God. I want you now to partner with me. We're going to do this all over again. A little bit later, He is there in the Galilee. And he says, all authority in the heavens and the earth has been given to me. Now, therefore, go. Go. Go live it out. And go baptize people now. And go teach people. And go carry on the work. You're now my partner. If you flip onwards from John's gospel here, just briefly to Acts chapter 1. It's reiterated again through Luke's eyes, as Luke narrates the story. You know this so well in uh, Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That is, in Greek, you will be my martyr. That is, you will go and carry on this mandate from the Father, I partnered with God and I completed my course and now I give the mantle to you. Go! Go minister. Go live it up. And as you go into this world, go and bear the image of God. Go bear the testimony of God. And go, what you've heard in secret, go and pronounce it on the housetops and the, uh, the mountains. And He invites us into partnership. 
He already did that with Adam. He did that with Abraham when he called him into partnership. God obviously did that with, with, with Jacob. He did that with Joseph. He did it with Moses. And he did it with Joshua and with Caleb. They all joined God in what he was doing. Then the judges came and they joined God. Then comes Samuel the prophet and there's Ruth, the Moabite woman. And then there's David. They joined God. Then comes Christ and the Word becomes flesh and lives among us. And He partners with God. Then there's Nathaniel. Then there's Philip. Then there's Peter. Then there's Andrew. Then there's James. Then there's John. Then there's Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. And even... A man from the Judean territory named Judas, uh, Judas from a village called Iscariot. And he says, even you come and join me. Partnership. God could have done all this himself, but it's as though he includes you and I. He lets us in on the action. You know, in Revelation 21 and 22, there is the final image of the biblical narrative. We might say it's the, 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 the last hurrah when it comes to biblical symbolism, and it's the, the image and the vision of the New Jerusalem, this city that comes out of uh, the heavens. There's a lot of folk who actually think this New Jerusalem is a literal kind of a city, I personally am not so sure because there is already the interpretation given here that this city is as a bride adorned for her husband. And the metaphor here is of a city to describe the bride of Jesus Christ. And actually here in this New Jerusalem image, there's, a, there's an interesting line. But I want you to fix your attention to verse 14. It says that, the wall of this city had 12 foundations and on them the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. If I could sketch this out and just bear with me for a minute. We know that the New Jerusalem is a, is a kind of a, a cube. Oh, how's that for a cube? That's pretty, that's pretty awful, huh? But okay, thank you for your imagination. The New Jerusalem is a perfectly square cube. Um, there's a lot of symbolism to that. It really represents just the Holy of Holies. This bride of Christ, this body of Christ is holy to the Lord. It's the temple of God and it's what this cube represents. It also says that there are these gates on all these respective sides. But then it says, interestingly, underneath this city, it's as though there are 12 foundations. And these foundations are the apostles of the Lamb. It's those original 12 men that went out and propagated the good news of Jesus Christ. They partnered with God. They took the mantle and they began to speak what they heard and what they saw and what they understood and what they handled. And they began to describe this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Beloved, you and I are here today, think of it, confessing the name of Jesus the Christ. We are in this body of Christ 2,000 years later 
because 12 men partnered with God. Think of it. 12 men partnered with God. I don't want to go into what happened to the 11th and how Matthias was voted in and perhaps it should have been the Apostle Paul. I just want you to stop for a minute. 12 men brought us to this day. In God's economy, it's not going to take a thousand or even 10,000 men to bring us to this day. In God's economy, it was a motley crew of young men next to a lake who smelled a fish, who didn't have it all together intellectually, who could not speak while they were Galilean. Only one person was from the Judean territory, and it was Judas uh, Iscariot. The rest, the 11, were up from up north in the Galilee territory. They were the least likeliest to contribute uh, to this body of Christ being built up. They were the least qualified. They had nothing going for them. And yet, God chose these men, and they said yes to the Lord, and the rest is history. It doesn't take a thousand men to change this world. It takes perhaps only 12. And here is this enormous body of Christ. It's been going on now for uh, two millennia, and it's based upon 12 men who said yes. Are you willing to take the mantle from these 12 men? In a way, are you willing to take the torch from these 12 men? And as you live into this world, and perhaps as you teach, and perhaps as you go and come, would you be willing to give testimony of Jesus Christ as Lord? Would you be willing to open up your mouth? Would you be willing to make your life visible and put your life on display? All the things that God has whispered to you in secret, even here at Legacy, would you be willing to shout it from the rooftops? Not necessarily a man on the street corner with a big poster and maybe a Bible in his hand and a megaphone in the other. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. Repent. I'm not sure that's exactly what the Lord has in store for us. But when it says, shout it from the rooftops, that is, like Paul would write to the Corinthians, we are a letter and we are the aroma of Christ. Could you be a kind of a letter where folk read your life and they read into the narrative of your life the gospel of Jesus Christ? On the day of resurrection, he breathed the Holy Spirit into them so that they could be regenerated and come alive. On the day of Pentecost, he baptized them further and deeper into a kind of a cloak so that they can live unashamed in the public arena of life and declare the Lord's name. God took care of the inner river to feed them so that they can drink and, and, and never, ever be thirsty again. God took care of the mantle on the day of Pentecost. He filled them with the Spirit within and He clothed them with the Spirit without so that they're thoroughly equipped for every good work. So they can absolutely go live in the arena of life 
and they have a supply on the inside and they have a clothing upon them so that they're not ashamed. They don't have to be in hiding. They don't have to be timid. They can just live with God and make Him known. The question before the house today, will you be Adam that awakes from the dirt and live out God? Will you be Eve and join God? Will you be Abraham and walk with God? Will you be Moses and walk with God? Will you be Samuel who speaks for God? Could you be a David who rules and reigns with God? Could you be a fisherman who declares God? A tax collector who writes for God? Or did you just receive the Holy Spirit so that you could have a, a Jesus fix? Did you receive this clothing of the Holy Spirit, this empowerment of the Holy Spirit so you could just, you know, sit at your house and twiddle your thumbs, do more Bible studies? I mean, how much longer do you want to do Bible study? I, th I think you have the message. Hello, let me talk to you guys. I mean, how much more do you need to learn? I think you guys know it all. I think you understand much of it. Here's the issue. Will you take the spirit that was given to you within? Will you take the spirit that was given to you without? And will you walk with your God? Will you partner with God? You know, in John 15, there is the metaphor of the vine and the branch with the key word, you need to abide. If you abide in Him, that is, if you remain in Him, you will bear much fruit. And if the Lord um, has permission to prune you and to cut you and to sanctify you and to grow you, you will bear much fruit. He's talking about partnership. He will be the sap within you the supply within you, and you will manifest the fruit of God. Then we get to verse 12. And he says, this is my commandment. This is my burden. That you love one another, even as I have loved you. Then he says, no one has greater love than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. Verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Just stop there for a minute. As the Father sent me, I now want to send you. And if you do this, you will be my friend. If you obey me, so the Lord has a lot of mandates, a lot of burdens, a lot of teaching. Every single time you partner with that truth, you obey that teaching, that commission, that mandate, it's as though you strengthen your friendship with God. Now this is an interesting thing because Abraham was known as the friend of God. 
Abraham was the friend of God. And we know uh, a little bit, we get this innuendo from the Bible, that Abraham was a man who walked with God. He didn't have a Bible at that time for Bible study. He did not have conferences to attend. He was not busy with Christianity and religiosities. There was no law code for him to be under. Abraham was just a man who heard God. God said, go offer your son. Okay, let's go. He just did whatever God asked of him. And he was known as the friend of God. And from that one man comes an entire nation. An entire people group was formed from one man who just heard God and did what he said. And he was known as the friend of God. Listen, the friends of God influence this world. Not the students of scripture or the masters in divinities or the doctorates or the reverence or the whatever title you want to give yourselves. Here's the point of my message. If you want to be a partner with God and contribute to the building of the new Jerusalem, become a simple friend of God. Now, what is a friend of God? It's just somebody who hears God and say, Amen. It's not somebody who interrogates God and rejects God and reinterprets God and, and basically says, you know what, we'll do this another day. That's the person that God uses, His friend. So all throughout Scripture, there has been these men and women who just, they heard God and they did what He said. And here Jesus basically in John 15 says, you're going to bear amazing fruit. And your fruit will remain. That is the work that you do because you abide in me and you obey me. That work will remain. Listen, here we are 2,000 years later and the work of God remains. Even though there's a lot of chaos out there in the spiritual life and in, in religion, so to speak, and in the denominations, there, there's a lot of degradation and there's a lot of spirituality that's just below the standard of God. But still... The truth prevails to this day. Why? Because a couple of men said, Okay, we will go, God. We will live this out. Kind of like Mary. She said to that angel, Let it be done to me according to your word. And she became pregnant with the Holy Spirit. And it brought salvation to the entire world from one little girl who just says, Amen. Yes, Lord. Okay. And she could not figure it out. She could not understand how is this going to be. And the angelic word to her was, With God, all things are possible. And Jesus says here in John 15, You can bear fruit. You can actually change the climate of, of, of your culture of your environment, of your house, of even your own temple. And your fruit will remain. Here we are, from one little girl comes a Savior to all mankind. And from 12 unqualified men, the laughing stock of the culture of that time, comes you and I 2,000 years later. As we live in the body of Christ, we stand upon the foundation of a couple of men who just said yes. And in that friendship with God, 
They had that indwelling spirit. They had that clothing spirit. And, and they had a heart to say, yes, Lord. And from that friendship and in that friendship, there have come billions and billions of people that are saved. Will you forever remain a student, a scholar, or will you become like Abraham and just walk with God and be his friend? Go back to John 15. He says, if you do, verse 14, what I tell you to do, then you really are my friend. In verse 15, he says, no longer do I call you slaves. Although Jesus had a rabbi and disciple relationship, he was the authority figure and they were the, the followers, the responding figures. In a way, he was the master and they were the slaves. But in a way, he says, this whole, this whole um, rabbinic and, and, and discipleship relationship it's, it's, it's over. Now we do this together. Kind of like a, a, a woman is joined to her man. And the two become one. And even though they're separate, yet they're one. And they're in one direction. And they put their hands to a plow together. In friendship, they accomplish a mission. Jesus says, me just being the teacher and forever teaching... It's, it's, it's a little bit over. Now we just walk together. Our hands are on the same plow. I work in you and you work with me. I and you and you and me. We're now friends. So in a way we'd say, how has the body of Christ been built? The, the, the scholarly answer would be the body of Christ has been built by the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers. Because that's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, which is true. The body of Christ is built in a way by apostles and prophets. But just hear my heart for a second. The body of Christ is built because a few men became the friends of Jesus Christ. They partnered with Him not because just... It's the right thing to do, but there was a, an intimacy in that friendship. There was a respect and an honor. And they wanted to really please their friend. No doubt it was a mandate. No doubt they were commissioned. No doubt there was a mantle upon them to do this. But I, I want to go a little deeper today. They simply loved this man, their friend. No longer do I call you slaves. I find it interesting that so many of us, we just don't want to obey because we feel like God is bossing me around. He's the master, I'm the slave, and he, I just got to like do what he wants, and he's a killjoy. And he says here, I no longer call you slaves. You're my friend. And it's as though... This is what God has always wanted. Religion and human spirituality has made out of you and I these rigid, slave-like, obedient 
kind of people where we're under a kind of a law and a standard and I got to obey. And Jesus comes, he says, no, I do want you to obey, but it's from a whole different relational interaction. It's that of phileo, friendship, love. Let's go back to John 15. No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. Let me stop there for a minute. I have been in ministry for a very, very long time, and I've been around phenomenal men and women of God over some three decades now. Leaders often operate in a vacuum and have to operate at a distance. I can't play all my cards or disclose all my cards. Otherwise, you may lose respect for me as a leader. So you see, leaders often don't, how do you say, empower others. Because if I empower you to do ministry, then you may not come to my ministry anymore. And there's globally, and for two millennia, there's been this thing where there is this clergy, and then the attendees. In theology, they call them the laity. The superior echelon up here. Then there's a big gap. And then there's the congregants, if you will. In the fourth century, they began to create a division. It was already a little bit there in the first century, but it really took on momentum in the fourth century when the professional spiritual people were separated from the, the common congregants. And you'll see even basilicas were set up where there's a gap between where the congregants sit. There's always a gap to the people who minister. And you'll see even in our school, the more I scoot forward to be closer, you'll see the more people scoot back. Because we're just used to this gap. And you'll see in many places, we even have to create a stage. This elevation has been around now for 1,700 years. And it's exactly this thing that the Lord is speaking about. Where in a way, the, the, the leaders hold you at bay. And in the rabbinic tradition of the first century, that the rabbi can't play all the cards because... What if you out-rabbi me? What if you out-knowledge me? Then I no longer, in a way, have authority over you and be your teacher. And the Lord here does an amazing thing. He's the God of heaven and earth. There's really only one that should be on a pedestal. There's really only one that should be above it all. And here He comes, and in a way, He smashes that whole mindset, and He says... You and I's relationship are not going to have a gap. It's going to be friendship. It's going to be intimate. A slave don't know what his master is doing. Why? I can't empower the slave. What if you overthrow me? What if you get a bigger following than me? And the Lord says, even so, I'm no longer going to be mysterious to you and keep you at arm's length and keep you in suspense. I'm letting you in. I'm letting you into my secrets. The way I let Abraham in. And the way I let Moses in. And the way I let David in. Welcome on board. There's no gap between us. You're my friend. 
Notice here. No longer do I call you slaves. The slave does not know what his master is doing. But I call you my friends. Could there be any sweeter word in your Bible? For all the things which I have heard from my Father, I have made it known to you. I'm letting you in. You'll see in religious spirituality, human-based spirituality, we, we can't let you in on, on what we know or our secrets or our, in a, in a way, our resources. We've we got to keep you at arm's length. Why? To keep you subservient. And it was no more um, vivid than in that rabbinic tradition. The rabbi would not play all his cards. And the Lord says, I'm done with this way of ministry. I'm letting you in. My dad told me all things. You are going to know all things. And then he says here in John, I'm going to give you now the Holy Spirit. And he's going to lead you into all of the truth. And declare things to you. And make things known to you. And he's going to guide you and comfort you and help you and advocate for you. In a way, you're not an orphan. There's no gap between us. You're going to make it. The church has been built not upon doctrines and dogmas and creeds. It was built on 12 men who became the friends of Jesus Christ. Doctrines built institutions. Legalism built denominations and four walls. But friends built the body of Christ. But I, I just know I'm not qualified. God knows. I'm just not eloquent. God knows. I don't understand all things. God knows. That's why He gave you the Holy Spirit within and the power of the Holy Spirit upon you. You have no excuse. But here's the thing. Do you want to be the friend of God? Or do you love remaining the slave at arm's length that does not know what his master is doing? And you'll notice so many of us, even though there are mysteries in God, don't misunderstand me. We know in part, we prophesy in part, we see through at last dimly. But you notice so many of us as Christians, we're just, we're not sure what the master is doing. And we're always like playing this guessing game. And in a way, we're always interrogating God for answers. That lifestyle is proof that you're probably still in this rabbinic kind of an interaction where you're at arm's length, so to speak. Perhaps we should take this word very seriously. Come on in, my friend. And begin to just walk with God. Pay attention to what He says to you, because believe me or not, God speaks. And He speaks even to this day. And He will tell you, go to the left, go to the right, stop here, do this, do that. If you're born of God, God is obligated to lead you. He's obligated to instruct you. You're the son, the daughter. He's obligated to train you in His ways. So just go on a walkabout with God. And just, when you wake up, walk with God. 
When you sit down, walk with God. When you come in, when you go out, just walk with God. And you'll be like Abraham, the friend of God. Amen. What a word. I, I think I'm going to read it again. No longer do I call you my slave. And so many of us, we're burned out because we have the slave mentality. i got to please this God. Please this God. Forever. And obedience has become like a cuss word in the spiritual life. He says, no, 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 no. The slave does not know what his master is doing. But you're my friend. And everything that I've heard from my father, I've declared to you. Could there be any sweeter verse in the Bible? I'm just, that's a hypothetical question. How good is that verse? You did not choose me, but I chose you and I set you so that you would go forth and bear fruit. I believe the Lord still wants to send you and say, go, go walk with me wherever you go, go bear fruit. And in context here, the fruit bearing is in relationship to your friendship with God. Step outside of that interaction of friendship and it's as though ugh, your fruit is stunted. And you block this partnership that God has for you. He says, uh, I want your fruit to remain and whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give it to you. And these things I command you so that you can love one another. Friendship. I want to conclude in John chapter 21. There was a man by the name of Peter who was desperate to, to please God. And he, even at one time, we would say to the Lord, if, if everybody forsakes you, and if everybody should run from you, I will stick it out. I will not deny you. I will not forsake you. And uh, Jesus even said to him, no, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, and I've prayed for you. So that when, after you have fallen, you would be recovered and you would strengthen your brothers. So Peter is this man. Jesus even asked him, would you just pray for, with me for an hour? And he couldn't. And the Lord would say to him, yeah, Peter, your spirit is very willing to, 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 to stand up for me and to speak out for me and to defend me and to, to partner with me. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And then, you know, comes the crucifixion and Peter just runs and uh, eventually curiosity got the better of him and he sneaks into the temple, uh, the, the high priest Caiaphas' courtyard. I've been there. And uh, he over listens and he tries to see what goes on with Jesus' trial. And he speaks up a bit and maybe one of those uh, folks sitting around the fire early that morning, they realize, ooh, this is, is this Peter? Is this a Galilean? And he swears three times. He passionately, vehemently denies Jesus. And of course, the rooster crows, and it's exactly the way the Lord prophesied before the rooster crows, you would have uh, denied me three times. So this man had a dismal failure. On the day of resurrection, he was there in hiding with the other disciples. And Jesus breathed into him the Holy Spirit. So this man, Peter, becomes a new creation. 
Jesus says to him, go. I want to use you. I want you to go live for me. And as you read the narrative, you'll see that uh, Peter actually went back up to the Galilee and he got back in his old fishing boat and he doesn't catch a thing. And as the story continues, um, now uh, be reminded here, he already has the spirit within him. And he returns to his old life and Jesus says, no, cast your net on the other side. And, and they do and they, they catch all these fish and um, Peter sees the Lord and he uh, jumps off the boat and he starts swimming in to come back to his Lord. And so when you pick up the scene here in uh, John chapter 21, Jesus is wanting to have a little bit of an encounter with Peter. And I want you to notice how tender this encounter is. And in this encounter, three times the Lord will in a way restore Peter. But there's a, there's a little bit of a nuanced situation going on that I want to point out to you in just a few minutes. John chapter 21 and verse 15. And when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus had a cookout for them. Like any good friend. Instead of having another Bible study, they had another cookout. So they had breakfast and uh, the Lord said, uh, Peter, or Simon Peter, can we go on a little walk? Simon says, uh, sure. Then Jesus says to him, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than the uh, other disciples that are here? And that word, the first time when he says, do you love me? That is the Greek word agape. Do you love me? Do you agape me? And that word agape or agape as we would say, that word just means, do you love me with the purest, purest and highest, most sacrificial love possible? And at one time, of course, Peter had told the Lord, I'll die for you. And Jesus said, greater love is no man than the person that lays down his life for his friend. It, it wasn't Peter's heart. It really was in his heart to agape Jesus. But when the hour of trial came, Peter just ran and cursed and swore. And so he did not have this agape love. He had the intention and, and perhaps the motive but the reality of agape love was not within him. He was willing, but very weak. So Jesus asks him, do you agape me? Would, would you die for me? And Peter replies to the Lord and he says, Lord, you know that I love you. And the word that Peter uses is the word phileo. Jesus asks Peter, Peter, would you lay down your life for me? That is, would you sacrificially die for me? And Peter responds to the Lord and he says, uh, yeah, you know I love you. But the word that he uses is not agape. It's the word phileo. And phileo is the Greek word love. 
that implies brotherly love, the love of friendship. The love of friendship. He says, Lord, I phileo you. It's kind of where we get the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love or the love of friendship. Peter knew he could not get to the place of agape. He had been humbled. He had been very sobered through his denial of the Lord. And he just falls back on that word in John 15. Lord, all that I can possibly be to you is a friend. I would like to die for you. I would like to give up my life for you. But all that I have in me is just friendship. And it's the most honest and humbling and sincere response. At one time, he was very braggadocious and self-confident. Oh, I'll die for you, Jesus. No problem. And now he's sober. I'll be your friend, Lord. And notice what the Lord says to him there in verse 15. He says, based upon friendship, feed my sheep. Friendship with Jesus can contribute to the building of the body of Christ. Feeding the sheep, nurturing the sheep, taking care of others. This city of the New Jerusalem is built on these 12 apostles. One of those apostles failed dismally in the agape love department. He couldn't lay down his life. He couldn't. So he says to the Lord, I'd like to be your friend. And the Lord says, okay, I'll let you in on friendship. And here's what I want you to do. You and I's friendship should result in the feeding of the lambs, the feeding of my sheep, the feeding of my children. That is, friendship with God should be nourishment to somebody else. In a way, friendship with God for Abraham was the nation of Israel. Friendship with God should have an effect. And here the effect is, you can feed others. From your friendship with God, you can nurture other people. Look at verse 16. This is the second time that the Lord's going to ask him the same question. So the Lord for a second time says, Simon, son of uh, John, do you love me? And for a second time, the Lord uses the word love, and it's the word agape again. He says, do you love me? Do you love me with an selfish, selfless, pardon me, sacrificial love? Would you die for me, Peter? And uh, Peter said to the Lord, Lord, you know that I love you. And the word that he used is phileo. I cannot die for you just yet, but I will be your friend. Notice what the Lord would say to him. Then shepherd, attend, guide, minister, nourish and nurture my sheep. Friendship with God feeds people. The Lord is asking him, actually, will you lay down your life for me? Will you die? 
And Peter is very sober. Lord, I'm not sure if I can do that in my own strength, but I can be your friend. And the Lord says, okay, I'll take friendship. I'll take friendship. And from that friendship, take care of my people. So here's my point. What can friendship with God do for you as it did for Peter? It can serve people. It can minister to people. If you're a friend, then God lets you in on His secrets. Then you are well equipped to minister the secrets to others. If you're a friend of God, God opens up heaven over you. He keeps nothing back. He discloses to you what His heart and His will and His burden is. That's a great supply for you to minister to others the will of God and the burden of God and the ways of God. Don't say, I, well, I don't know what I can do for God. You take care of your friendship with God. He opens up heaven over you. He will minister to you the secrets, the truths. Then you can feed and minister and shepherd others. He's not just asking you to die for Him. Of course, He asks you to, in a way, take up your cross, deny yourself. But Peter couldn't even do that. And the Lord said, okay, okay, okay. Let's just start with friendship. In verse 17, for a third time, Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah, son of John, do you love me? And at this time, the word love, Jesus swaps over to phileo. And so Jesus asks him, do you then love me the way a friend loves me? And at this time, Peter was really struck and he was sad. And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. This was all this man could come up with. And so the Lord at this time is not asking him to die. He just said, hey, if we could even just come to this place of friendship, that's good for me. That's good for me. And from that friendship, take care of my flock. Take care of my people. But now there's a little twist here. This man's friendship with God would grow so strong. He would be used as a pillar within the first uh, Christ community in Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, he would be preaching and he would lead some 3,000 people to the Lord. A couple of days later, some 2,000. At one time, they shut Peter up and they say, stop preaching in the name of this man. And he says, listen, I, I, I can't keep it in. I can't. I'd rather obey him than you. At one time, he's in a prison and an angel would open up a gate for him. At one time, he's not quite sure about how Gentiles can be a part of the, the Christ community, and God gives him a vision. And from friendship, this man really grows and grows, and this phileo love, this friendship love, would, would really take over this whole man's life, and he would minister to people, and he would say to them, for instance, I don't have silver, I, I don't have gold. I just have Jesus. Rise up and walk. 
And this friendship would become so sweet, so dear, that it eventually culminated actually in his own crucifixion. As the story goes, Peter ended up in Rome with the apostle Paul. Paul was taken outside of the city just a little bit and beheaded. But Peter and his wife, as much as the tradition uh, discloses the event, Peter and his wife was uh, strung up in the, the, um, the, the Circus Maximus, where they raised the horses and put to death by crucifixion as a mockery, as a laughingstock. And at that time, as tradition goes, you may know this, Peter said, I am not worthy to die like my Lord. Rather, crucify me upside down. And at that time, he comes into agape love. The love that would even die for a friend. At one time in his flesh, he thought, well, I will do this for Jesus. And he couldn't. Then Jesus restores him and said, okay, let's start then at least with friendship love. Take care of my sheep. And Peter's whole life is then this journey of friendship with God. But something magical happened. In his friendship with God, he gained agape love for God. And he would eventually die for God without a tantrum, without kicking, without screaming. And he becomes a foundation stone for the building of the body of Christ just out of friendship, out of partnership with Jesus. I want to close by uh, reading the last few verses here in John for you. It's so tender. It's so beautiful. It says in verse 18, Jesus speaks. He says, uh, Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked wherever you wished. The emphasis here, you lived an independent life. A self-seeking life. You were on the throne of your life, so to speak. He says, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you off to where you do not wish to go. And in that one verse, you see the maturing of a man of God. Initially, Peter was just this one who, who fought and, and clawed his way to the top and he swore, I, I won't do that. And so self-confident. But then again, God took a journey with this man and he began to walk with God. And eventually, he was taken captive and he didn't kick and he didn't scream. And from his friendship with God came this grace to bear under crucifixion and this grace to, to be led you know, to that uh, point of death. And he was able to actually lay down his life for his friend. But it started with simple friendship. God's not asking you to die tomorrow to save your college and... He's just asking you today, would you walk with me? Today, can we just be friends? And today, what you hear, could you just minister it to my sheep? 
And in time, as the impossible comes your way, you will have been built with grace to bear under those difficult moments that no doubt all of us will have in life. It says here in verse 19, Jesus said this, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God by. And then he said to, uh, he said to Peter, follow me. Follow me. And in a way, to Peter personally, those were the climactic, consummate, and final words of Christ. Follow me and be my friend. Partnership with God is not an issue you study for. It's not like Jesus said to him, um, Hey, uh, Peter, do you know me? Do you understand me? Peter, do you know the Torah? He said, no, do you love me? If you want to enter into partnership with God the way a woman enters into partnership with her man, the issue is love. If you want to be used of God in this earth to minister God and even in this earth lay down your life for God, it's an issue of, of love. So partnership with God is not a strength in the flesh it's not just a confession in the mouth. It's not an IQ in the mind. It's not you having all your doctrinal theological ducks in a row. Peter didn't even have his ducks in a row for years, theologically speaking. But yet, he began the journey through friendship. So there it is. Are you just a slave? Yes, Lord. Keep score all day long. Or are you like a friend that just walks with God? So God is still looking for men and women to just partner with Him by way of friendship. So consider your own friends. Study friendship a little bit to begin to get an idea of what God is after. In a nutshell, changing this planet is an issue, really, of friendship.